0: We have been duped by feminism, sexual liberation, and antidepressants. We have been told that we are powerful and free now as women, but we feel tired, wired, and bitter. We're mostly eating right, exercising, and meditating, wrangling to-do lists, and arranging playdates, and yet there's a haunting hollowness beneath the huge complaints What if I told you that there is a huge storehouse, a reservoir of energy inside of you that has not been tapped, that you could feel light and pulsing, excited and alive in ways that a wellness lifestyle cannot deliver, that you could trust yourself, that the world could feel safe and that unexpected and expected delights could start to illuminate your path. No coach, therapist, doctor, or guru required. Just you learning to get real, present, and attentive with you. I feel like I'm here to match make your inner parts for the greatest love affair ever written. I want to help you learn first where you're buying eggs from the hardware store, which is the source of all pain. I want to help you master entering through the upset, which is the only spiritual practice you'll ever need and to get real comfortable putting on your villain crown, which is, in my opinion, the key to true power. And then you'll attune to your inner yes, so you can live the life defined by the specific pleasure of who you are. I am so excited to announce my latest book called The Reclaimed Woman, which is available for pre-order now, So if you head to the link in show notes, you can learn more about bonuses, events, and companion offerings. And I cannot wait to see your gorgeous face on the path. I'm Dr. Kelly Brogan. You may know me as a New York Times bestselling author of a book with an exploding pill on the cover, renegade psychiatrist, pole dancer, or honorary member of the Disinformation Dozen. What can I say, I'm a born provocateur. I've spent most of my recent life exposing deceptions, connecting dots and discovering the secret places my inner victim is still waiting to be liberated. And now I feel called to help you reclaim all of your parts, your health, your sexuality, your power and your expression so that you can finally truly own yourself. I want to ignite in you that inner knowing and the pulsing vitality that lives beneath your disempowerment, disconnection, and resentment, so that you can audaciously, courageously, and playfully alchemize your struggle into the specific pleasure of who you are. This is Reclamation Radio, a Soul Fire production. Hi, and welcome back to Reclamation Radio. I'm Dr. Kelly Brogan, and today... I would like to take a deep dive into some of my core messaging, which is myth busting anxiety and depression. I promise that this won't be as long as my Joe Rogan interview, and we'll also speak to my core messaging, you know, what's in my books and my online program, Vital Mind Reset and membership, Vital Life Project, which is that there is nothing wrong with you and that we have been deceived around our very nature. So this reclamation process requires that we engage a couple of important reframes. So today I want to talk about why we think that medications work, why we think that so-called mental illness, so I'm going to be talking about anxiety and depression, but This extrapolates to all of the labels in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the Bible of Psychiatry, right? So why we think that illness is related to chemistry and a so-called chemical imbalance, the untold story of antidepressants specifically, but the risks that we are not informed about because doctors are literally not in a position to provide informed consent And where we go from here with this information. Okay. So, to begin the reframe, I often invoke a Krishnamurti quote, which is that it is no sign of health to be well adapted to a profoundly sick society. Right. So, if you're chugging along, like everything's cool, everything is most definitely not cool. So, if you are expressing symptomatology around the not coolness, whether that is through your biology, through your psychology, through your emotionality, something is actually working, right? And so that's why I have described those who are captured by the guild of psychiatry and by the mental health system, the so-called, I just always have to put that in quotes, mental health, as the canaries in the coal mine right, as the most sensitive, most expressive among us to what is actually going wrong in our ecosystems, in the natural world, in our social structures, I have become very interested in the social structures that set us up to experience deep struggle and suffering that is then corralled, that is then labeled, by the medical system as a pathology, right? So Francis Weller talks about the community wound and this concept that if we don't wake up to 40 familiar eyes who know us in ways better than we can know ourselves, you know, remember, we can't actually see ourselves ever. So the social infrastructure, when it is absent, what happens, right? I often counsel myself and women in my life Around how right it is to feel that raising your children alone, living in a home and maintaining and managing it alone is not something that your nervous system has ever registered in the history of human ancestry as normative. Something is not right about that. You know, I often think about the fact that if we had community, if we as women had true sisterhood, like co habitation related sisterhood that the adventures, you know, the trials and tribulations, the explorations, and even the just frank absence of the father would not be felt in this like core abandonment way that so many of us are working on in our inner healing journeys, right? So if a father were to leave for whatever reason, and we had all of these women around us, the children would not feel it, right? So this village reverberates in its messaging to our systems as safety. And what is it to function as automatons in modular families and to pretend that something is right, even with a parent, two parents, even with a man and a woman in the household raising children, right? So that is not even to speak to The ways in which our disconnection from the natural world to our self-sustenance, to our daily rhythms, the imposition of so many forms of toxicity, whether it be electromagnetic or chemical, uh, industrial, whether it's actually thought forms, we are swimming (laughs) in our own dysfunction as beings. And this is being expressed, right? So if we reframe those who are expressing as sentinels, that's an important first step in the reclamation process. And I often wonder if anything I ever did, you know, for patients in practice was simply to tell them there's nothing wrong with you actually. And we're going to find out why, you know, you're expressing this way. And we're going to start with the basics. We're going to start with that very foundational signal of safety around lifestyle. Right. So Terence McKenna said that artists are here to save mankind. And it's been my observation that as we begin to restore, remember, and reclaim as individuals, all of these gifts are unlocked and that these folks, you know, who are often captured in these diagnoses have so much vision to bring to us as a collective. So through this framework, your illness is an existential question that only you can answer, right? So it is, your symptoms are literally you telling you about you. And it feels foreign because we've been enculturated around that separation. And if we reframe this way and we look at what we're calling depression, we look at what we're calling anxiety as an invitation to explore where in your life you are insisting that fulfillment be available where it simply is not, and that there's a hero or heroine's journey that you're being invited to embark upon that necessarily involves a dark night of the soul, that necessarily involves the sweet experience of your own courage. Then on the other side of it, You come home to yourself, to the you that you've always been. And that is universally the feedback that I have received from Vital Mind Reset participants and from patients is I feel like myself. I finally feel like I am landing in my own skin. And I actually think that's why so many of us become more attractive, more beautiful as we move through this process, because we're liberating energy from stored trauma spaces in our stress physiology. So, if the goal is 360 degree self relating, right? It's gaining that perspective on yourself and all of the dimensions of yourself so as to understand the messages that some of the dimensions are holding for your awareness. Then you can imagine that fighting with something that you are presenting to yourself, saying no to it, hating it, wanting it to be not as it is, It's just forestalling (laughs) your progress towards that goal of 360 relating, of total self-embrace, of moving through the shame walls of your own self-rejection, self-betrayal, and self-abandonment in order to claim these precious gems of who you are, right? So it's not like there's a wrong or a right, (laughs) but if we can agree that the goal is ending all of the wars inside so that you can release Relax and resolve all of the struggles on the outside with your partner, with your job, with the government. You know, all of this controversy, it begins inside. And I'm a firm believer, as we'll get into, that this journey begins with the reclamation of choice. And what that does to your nervous system is life changing. When you begin to understand that what you eat for breakfast, that what you buy at the supermarket, Let alone grow in your yard, that, you know, what you drink, that how you think, that all of these little choices all day long have vast impact. When you begin to experience that and it comes into your tissues as a reality, you can't unknow it. You may grapple with it over time because the readiness factor is the most mysterious of all the variables I've ever explored, like what makes somebody ready? And the only thing I've come to is that movement in the direction of change finally feels like relief. It finally feels like, okay, I know there's a lot of uncertainty ahead of me and I already feel better, you know, that I'm embarking. I also know that this is the beginning stage, right? And what comes next, is resolving the fear of life. Alexander Lowen, a psychiatrist, wrote a book by that title, Fear of Life. How could we be afraid of life? I thought we were afraid of dying, right? But there is so much in the reclamation of our eros, in the reclamation of our vital force, and the reconnection to that animating energy that is from somewhere grand, from someplace beyond us, that is the sweet terrain of understanding why it would be that we would even deign to move through the more harrowing elements of, and phases and passages of this journey. It's to come to the place where the things that you thought mattered so much, simply release into, you know, sort of sparkly particles. And honestly, the things that you didn't think matter begin to take on great significance, like What it feels like to put one fork of food into your mouth and experience the sensual pleasure of that. You know, what it is to wake up with a devotional practice. You know, what it is to come into silence and slowness. Why would that matter? Right. But all of a sudden, these things start to take on immense significance. How you speak to your lover, how you share touch with that person. How is it that we can begin to make love to all? of life. What would that look like if you were doing that? Right. So contrary to what I've just framed, the dominant narrative around anxiety, depression, associated medications, and what it is to struggle is predicated on victim consciousness. And what I mean by that is that you are encouraged I call it victim coddling, right? You're encouraged to say, I hate this. This sucks. Why is this happening to me? Please fix it. And who's going to come to the rescue is the system, the doctors, the experts, the gurus with the credentials who are going to tell you about you what you can't possibly know, right? Because you can't possibly know your genes and your brain chemistry and whatever is the theory du jour. And the challenge is that the villain, Is you. (laughs) So you are fighting you with the help of the system. And this victim triangle is an endless parade of hat switching experiences of suffering. And it's very familiar. I've had many patients describe to me the validation that they feel when they finally get a diagnosis, their first diagnosis, they feel like, oh, yes, I knew something was wrong with me. And now it's real, right? Now I can see and they agree that something is wrong with me and it's not my responsibility. It's not my fault. Well, in this warfare model, there is no victory. There is no end. And that silent scream of chronic illness becomes your open air grave. I mean, it's really not even that traumatic of a rendering of the situation to describe it that way, right? So, and you can see how warfare threads through the conventional medical system because you just look at the name of these medications, right? They're all antis, anti-emetics, antihypertensives, antibiotics, anti-anxiety, antidepressants, antipsychotics. And the fight is very tempting. It's very alluring. And there may be a time where that's exactly what you need to activate your energy. However, it's important, that you know what the greater body of scientific literature and research has to say about this model. And that is my effort to provide the groundwork for informed consent that can not possibly be made available to you through your prescribing physician. Okay, so let's dive into some myth-busting. Firstly, it's a chemical imbalance. You may have heard of serotonin as the happy chemical. This is one of the more pervasive concepts in the hegemony of American culture the world over. And it is taking a long time to die because in seven decades of published research, there is literally no valid evidence to support the claim that serotonin has anything to do with so-called depression. And again, remember, I'm just putting a spotlight on depression, serotonin, anxiety. You could have this same conversation, pick any so-called brain chemical and any so-called mental illness, and the answer would be the same. There's been more attempts at validating this particular theory than probably any other, and that's what makes it all the more sad. So most recently, Moncrief published an umbrella review And this essentially is the summary of so many decades of failed research. And what she found was that in tens of thousands of participants, they looked at serotonin metabolites, they looked at concentrations in body fluids, they looked at so-called receptor binding, they looked at postmortem analysis, imaging, tryptophan depletion studies, genetic gene environment interactions, and here is her conclusion. Quote, The main areas of serotonin research provide no consistent evidence of there being an association between serotonin and depression and no support for the hypothesis that depression is caused by lowered serotonin activity or concentrations. And I like to take it a little bit further by invoking a researcher by the name of Andrews who says, quote, we also propose that the direct serotonin-enhancing effects of antidepressants disturb energy homeostasis and worsen symptoms. We argue that symptom reduction, which only occurs over chronic treatment, is attributable to the compensatory responses of the brain attempting to restore energy homeostasis. So essentially what he's saying, which I'll get into when we talk about risks, is that if there's any benefit, it's because the body is recruiting an adaptation to a poison. Is there a better way? Yes, there is a better way. (laughs) So why do we think that these medications work? Why might we have the impression that these medications are addressing a so-called chemical imbalance? So again, I'll share some choice quotes I've been collecting in my little bag over the years. The first is by an editor of the British Medical Journal who says, quote, unfortunately, in the balance between benefits and risks, it is an uncomfortable truth that most drugs do not work in most patients, end quote. Another by Marcia Engel, who says, quote, it is simply no longer possible to believe much of the clinical research that is published or to rely on the judgment of trusted physicians or authoritative medical guidelines. I take no pleasure in this conclusion. Which I reached slowly and reluctantly over my two decades as an editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. So we think that these medications are addressing a chemical imbalance in no small part because of direct-to-consumer advertising. We in America are one of three countries that allow pharmaceutical companies and industry to speak and advertise directly to consumers slash patients about theories of biology health, and illness. And obviously when it comes to the ways in which media can shape our dominant thought forms, this is non-trivial. So we might think and really want to think that science is science and science, even the word has this like inbuilt innate integrity, but there are some aspects of science, especially as it applies to the approval of these medications that are important for you to know, like, did you know that it only requires two studies for the approval FDA approval of an antidepressant medication? So you can literally toss a coin over and over and over again until you get heads. And then you can present the two heads (laughs) into the world. So, you know, a now famous study from back in 2008 in the new England journal by Turner, Really sought to like expose the extent of this data manipulation. And what they analyzed was the 74 studies that were used to approve 12 antidepressants. 38 of these studies were positive, meaning that they showed that there was a benefit to taking an antidepressant. 37 of these 38 were published, right? 36. Very similar number to 38, (laughs) 36 were negative, showing no benefit. And three of these were published as negative, right? However, 11 of them were published with a positive spin, which is why you always have to read the methods and the data, not just the author's conclusion. And 22 of them were unpublished. That explains why we have one impression that is very much disconnected from reality. Irving Kirsch is one of the most important figures in whistleblowing around psychiatry and arguably one of the world's placebo experts. And he worked with a 2008 review where he invoked the Freedom of Information Act, right? Because they hide these unpublished and negative studies in the file drawer, and he invoked their release, right? And what he found was that antidepressants outperformed placebo in only 20 of 46 trials. So that's actually less than half. And the overall difference between drugs and placebo in those outperforming trials was 1.7 on a 52-point Hamilton scale, like literally trivial. So maybe you can start to see how in these short-term trials, there may be an effect. The effect may be inconsistent. It may be minimal. However, what happens like in the real world and what happens with the nature of this effect over time? Often there is an invocation of the alcohol analogy, right? So you take somebody who has like really bad social anxiety and you put them in a trial and use the placebo arm gets like cucumber juice or whatever, And the active arm gets two shots of vodka before every, you know, social gathering at night. You could obviously see how over a six week or two month period, which is a typical time window for one of these trials, that alcohol could be deemed effective, right? That there is an effect, but we wouldn't jump to the conclusion that the people who experience the benefit have an alcohol deficiency or an imbalance And we wouldn't jump to the conclusion, certainly knowing the nature of the beast, that long term so called treatment would be of benefit. So there are many flaws in the nature of the study design. And then, even within the seeming benefit, there are a lot of unanswered questions about what that effect actually consists of. And this is a lot of what Kirsch also looked at. So when he found that. Antidepressants outperform placebo in only 20 of 46 studies. He went on to research and explore the overlapping effect. So, what he found is that 12% have a benefit, while 88% have basically all risk. So, what is the nature of this benefit? And he went on to research what he calls the active placebo effect. So, what happens in a lot of these trials is that Patients are perhaps because of direct-to-consumer advertising or otherwise made aware of the possible adverse effects of these medications, right? So dry mouth or constipation, racing heart, whatever it might be, and let alone like bleeding and death or whatever. So they're made aware of these initiatory adverse effects. But then they're told, okay, you're either going to be in the sugar pill group, or you're going to be getting the antidepressant that we're studying in the hallowed halls of the laboratories, right? So when they start to experience these adverse effects, there is a whole inner pharmacopoeia that is released that is in response to that belief that kicks in saying, I'm being treated now with a medication. I know I am because I have side effects. Something is happening to fix me. (laughs) So, this effect has been researched by comparing antidepressants to other medications like cardiac meds, like atropine, to identify whether or not there is a difference in the so called benefit. And guess what? Spoiler alert, there isn't. So, there are so many aspects of belief at play in the experience of efficacy. And also the withdrawal of these medications that like so many outcomes in medicine, it is essential to assess the mindset of the participants. Almost everywhere that I lecture or share this information, there will be somebody who says, I don't care what you say. I know that these medications have saved my life. Okay. I'm not taking that away from anyone. However, there are two studies that I like to showcase that can help us understand the power of mindset in these outcomes. And if we are talking about benefit with vast risk, and we're talking about, which we'll get into, and we're talking about benefit that could otherwise be engaged and appreciated and enjoyed with a risk-free intervention, would you make the same choice? This is called informed consent, right? So one of the studies was around the use of Lexapro, right? So common antidepressant, and the participants were given 20 milligrams of Lexapro, all of them. However, they were divided into two groups and one group was told that they were receiving said Lexapro. The other group, however, was told that they were taking a placebo. And guess what? Those in the Lexapro group had a fourfold greater response and benefit than those who were told they were taking a placebo. Four times as effective. What does that tell you, right? In another study, similarly, volunteers who were taking Prozac to remission, so who already felt fine, quote unquote, on their medication, they were told that some of them were going to be randomized to a sugar pill. And what happened in this study is that even though everyone was actually continued on their very same dose that they said saved their life, so to speak, there was a statistically significant emergent signal of depression in the participants, all of them, simply because they were worried that they were going to have their medication taken away, even though they were still taking it. Right? So this information helps us to understand why sort of like real life examination of how these medications may or may not be working is unimpressive, right? So the largest non-industry, right? So we talked about the industry studies and the shenanigans (laughs) that they get up to, to present one picture of these medications to us. But the largest non-industry funded study is called the STAR-D trial. And this cost the public $35 million. They followed 4,000 participants treated with Selexa. It was not blinded, so they knew what they were getting. And they found that half of them improved at eight weeks. So those that didn't improve were switched to all sorts of different medications or augmented. And this is very common in psychiatry. This is how, like, you know, somebody who goes through a teenage breakup can end up on five medications for 25 years by the time they're 30. So they're augmented with, you know, medication like Welbutrin. And guess what? (laughs) It didn't matter what was done because all of these participants remitted at the unimpressive rate of 18 to 30%, regardless of what happened. And then only 3% of the people were actually in remission at 12 months. So the truth of the matter is that in this mess of contradictory short-term data, it is essential to acknowledge that there are no studies, literally, that show a better outcome in those prescribed antidepressants long-term. So this would be like more naturalistic, what's called naturalistic data. So if you say, I don't care, you know, I just need to take the edge off, whatever, even if it works a little bit, that's better than nothing. Then it's also essential that we do a little bit of myth busting around their safety because that's how you make a decision. You say, okay, like it might not work that well, and it might just be working because I believe it is, and might just be working like a little bit. But what is the cost of that particular intervention? And would you still make the choice if you knew? So, in the first decade after its release, Prozac was named in over 40,000 reports of adverse effects to the FDA. So, this probably should have raised a red flag. However, it would take many, many, many years before some of the chief concerns around these medications would even hit the radical fringes of medical literature. And I know I went through my entire medical, psychiatric, internship, residency, and fellowship training before I began to learn a lot of what I'm about to share with you. And one of the important factors to consider before we dive into the more grim and gruesome stuff is that of iatrogenesis. So iatrogenesis is doctor induced harm. And what I want to shine a light on is iatrogenic pathology, right? So is it the case that once you sort of enter the mill of psychiatry, and let's say you enter because of generalized anxiety or depression or so-called ADHD and inattention or insomnia, how is it that you could come out with like three more diagnoses and associated medications? Well, there is an important Yale study that looked at the fact that one in 23 folks who are prescribed antidepressants actually then receive a bipolar diagnosis. So what I was taught in my training is, oh, we're unmasking the bipolar. Okay. It seems, based on the literature, that actually what's happening is we are generating further imbalance. We are generating further grasps at safety and primal defenses that are called, you know, bipolar disorder, mania, and the like. That is actually a result of the application of medication. There's a Canadian study of children who were prescribed stimulants that found that they were 13 times more likely to then be prescribed an antipsychotic and four times more likely to then be described an antidepressant. So this you know, sort of domino effect of prescribing, begetting new diagnosis, begetting new prescribing is very common. And it's because medication that is intended to suppress and otherwise war with presenting symptoms, which arguably includes all medications, all pharmaceuticals. It actually perpetuates exactly that which it purports to resolve. And this is true not only in psychotropics, psychiatric medications, but it's true for antibiotics, it's true for acid blockers, (laughs) it is true for all of these antis, right? So whenever you are imagining that you're just going to beat it into submission, You're actually generating the conditions for the long-term experience of what you were promised would be fixed by this. Like that's a pretty big reveal, right? Because otherwise it might be worth quote unquote, taking the edge off, right? So there's actually a term in the literature for what I'm talking about, which is called tardive dysphoria, which is the fancy medical term for chronic depression, that in this case is induced by the medication itself. So the book that changed the game for me and led me in 2010 never to start a patient on medication again, which is why I had a decade of experience watching what happens with these medications and specifically coming off of them without restarting them, right? Without taking that bait, was Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker. And what he found in the portrayal of the results for 16 non-industry funded research studies was the conclusion to his hypothesis that medications are actually inducing epidemics of mental illness. And that explains why more prescribing is associated with more mental health disability, which is what he sought to investigate. And. When we look at the ways that these medications perturb your experience of your own emotions, psychology, and your body, it does make some sense You know that you could get sort of, I don't know, you could start like swirling around in the labyrinth and imagining, well, this must be wrong with me too. And I, what else am I going to do? I got to take that for this problem too. And it just goes on and on and on. But this point seems trivial. In comparison to the next two points I'm going to make, which are, you know, I had my sword aloft for many, many years because of these two factors that I was never fully informed about. And I understand why, you know, it's like you don't go to the butcher to buy a vegan meal. I went to the system and I got what the system delivers. So, you know, I was really up in arms about this because I honestly felt a lot of guilt around the prescribing that I had done, including of pregnant and breastfeeding women, which was my specialty as a reproductive psychiatrist. The first is the known and identified signal of harm around impulsive violence, including suicide and homicide that these medications induce in seemingly random ways so the study that really awakened me to this was by Lucier and karate where they looked at folks who were prescribed medications for run of the mill just to sort of get them over the hump and what happened in these individuals is that they went on to commit heinous acts of violence that they you know killed their therapist they killed their child they pushed somebody in front of a train and what they found was the folks who had this experience had they shared a metabolic, Aberration, if you will, in their liver, so that they, at least theoretically, metabolize these medications in such a way that they became intoxicated. And I had the experience of co-presenting in London, actually available the presentation in Vital Mind Reset, with David Carmichael, who is one of these individuals who, after being routinely prescribed an antidepressant for work-related stress, went on to strangle his eleven-year-old son. And this is not a reality (laughs) that is risk assessed or stratified for in your primary care doctor's office when they write you that Zoloft prescription right you don't know if you're going to be that person and there's other literature to support this right so there's a swedish study of 500 women who completed suicide over half of them were medicated within the previous year pretty much every time i hear about suicide sort of out of the blue one of my colleagues kim witzak had this experience and i've written about it in a blog of her husband who hanged himself Never felt suicidal a day in his life until he began taking medications for run-of-the-mill issues, right? So another was by Thomas Moore, and he analyzed 1,500 cases of reported violence and found 31 psychotropic drugs. So these, this class of drugs were disproportionately associated with this violence. So what is happening here, you know, whether it's homicide or David Healy has really spearheaded the research on suicide, right? So looking at stable volunteers who become actively suicidal after they are treated. Again, in my training, I was told because we did witness this phenomenon, oh, it's just unmasking, you know, it's the patients are now better enough to act on, you know, they have enough energy now to act on what was just beneath the surface. And that is that's not what the literature demonstrates. So that is a factor that i feel is essential to consider especially because there's not a way to know your vulnerability. However, <laughs> perhaps the biggest one that was what i dedicated my practice to after i put down my prescription pad in 2010, which was helping patients come off these medications, right? So You know, there's crack cocaine, there's oxycodone, there's, you know, alcohol, there are rehabs for these things. (laughs) I began to fantasize about setting up, and I still do have this fantasy, setting up an inpatient rehab full of incredible holistic services for people who are coming off of psychiatric medications and feel that this is one of the most essential services to be offered. Why? Because I began to observe the medical, the physiologic dysfunction that would surface and result from the careful and intentional taper of these medications in individuals who robustly consented to this taper right so who wanted to come off of medication because they were potentially trapped in that bind of inefficacy and side effects and they wanted out well that should be if with full patient autonomy that should be a valid choice that is supported by a prescriber right and when i dedicated myself to helping women come off of these medications i was literally running like an outpatient rehab paged around the clock and what I saw changed my life. <laughs> and that's when I developed the protocol that is in my books and Vital Mind Reset. And that stems from the way that I resolve my own illness, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And I began to insist on this protocol first because I had the sense that it would be essential to send the system a signal of safety, to create a foundation before engaging this trial, right? Because it's really a trial. It's psychological, it's emotional, it's spiritual, it's physical. So before you go out into battle, you train, right? So this is the training and it works. So there's something to this order of operations, where when you establish this foundation and you begin to work with shifting your mindset around what was even wrong with you in the first place, right? Which is nothing, how it is that you possibly took the bait, which I've been talking about this entire episode, and you begin to develop that curiosity around the parts of you that you are ready now to meet. But first things first, I call it chopping wood, carrying water. So first things first, you have an entire month where you simply focus all of your attention on your power of choice and you change your eating habits and you change your consumerism and you change the way that you relate to the toxicity in the world. You change your bedtime. You begin to take care of yourself as if you're a little baby and that's what's happening. You're being reborn. That's literally the intensity of what is occurring here. So, coming off of these medications is something that has been characterized in the literature as <laughs> euphemistically discontinuation syndrome. Okay? And often, again, I was encouraged as a prescribing trainee to tell patients that their instability in the wake of medication dose decreases was an indication that they needed to go back on. Well, They weren't wrong, right? Because often patients find that as they decrease the dose and they develop strange, new and different symptoms that feel like they've been like plugged into an electrical socket, for example, if they return to the previous dose, those symptoms will resolve in the same way as when you're in alcohol withdrawal and you take a couple swigs, (laughs) you will feel better, right? So how do we create the conditions for safe discontinuation? So this only began to appear this reality in the medical literature, as far as I was witnessing, right? Because remember I started this in 2010, in 2014 and Fava, an Italian researcher began to talk about the fact that this is withdrawal. This is not the primary illness, right? So conclude with a quote from the Journal of Affective Disorders. Again, because this is not just my opinion or my perspective. So quote, all major classes of antidepressants have been associated with unpleasant and sometimes dangerous symptoms when they are discontinued. When they are used long-term, antidepressants can lose efficacy and may even result in treatment-resistant depression. That's there. Don't you wish you knew that, right, before you You know, curried that first prescription over to CVS. So because I believe that victim consciousness is the only human pathology, that literally nothing else is wrong with you, other than that you are steeped in the illusion that you are powerless, dependent, and helpless. I know that there is a better way to interact with adversity and struggle. And your suffering. And I believe, as I have mentioned, that it requires setting this foundation for a very, very embracing, containing signal of safety that will shift your system out of fight, flight, and freeze and into its native regenerative capacity. Your healing will literally unfold effortlessly when you create. The conditions. So, Vital Mind Reset was designed literally for that reason. You do not touch your medications beforehand. You keep everything else stable and you simply reclaim your power of lifestyle choice. It is a ritual portal through which you step so that you can begin to access your already present power that you gave away. You gave away. It wasn't even taken from you, you literally gave it away because you didn't know better. And now that you do, how will you work with that power? It requires holding and it requires a structured initiation to yourself, in my opinion. And then once that is underway and it really only happens once in your life, right? So Vital Mind Reset was designed to do once in your life, then you're connected to your inner yes and your inner no, and your body is stable enough that you can actually begin to feel that inner yes and that inner no. And you can distinguish it from your reactivity, from the fear and the shame and the grief that is residual, that's old and been running around your tissues for many, many decades. Because you can develop that witness consciousness. You can begin to watch yourself in awareness and to make choices about how to engage at the table with all of your parts, how to begin to say a non-coercive yes to the part of you that is in immense, immense resistance to what's in front of you in life. The part of you that is like a shaking leaf, constantly vigilant, you know, around What could be lurking, right? The part of you that is an appeasement, the part of you that imagines that if you don't agree with the person in front of you, you'll be rejected, abandoned, and that will be intolerable. You'll encounter the shame that is keeping these parts of you hidden from your own awareness. And the moment you feel that shame, you do not (laughs) travel any further, right? Don't trespass there and you'll grow your capacity in your system to hold these big sensations, that's all that they are, they're sensations, and to be with them, which is all we ever wanted as children. And then you will guide yourself to the next needed thing. So you become your own doctor, right? You become your own healer and you recruit the support that is needed to feel fulfilled and to begin to open like a pedal to the aliveness that is your birthright. And an essential part of connecting to this possibility is knowing that others have done this. So after one of many dark nights of the soul in my life in 2015, I shifted a lot of my work and advocacy to making sure that people knew that it is completely possible to resolve, integrate, and heal so-called chronic illness, whether mental health or otherwise. It is completely possible to come off of medications that you've been on for decades and to experience vitality and to begin to explore the dimensions of your selfhood. That's why I set about to publishing case reports in the medical literature, publishing case series, and even published a randomized placebo control trial of Vital Mind Reset, where we looked at people who were taking at least one medication, who had at least three diagnoses, and found that in the space of the program, they already were near remission, according to a very commonly used PHQ-9 assessment tool. So I collected video testimonials so that you could feel and look into the You know, the digital eyes of somebody who has walked this path before you to know that it's possible in order to see if something ignites inside of you that says, yeah, I'm ready. So I hope that this has been helpful.